You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, the first and only podcast devoted to one of the greatest bands in rock history, Deep Purple. Today's episode is episode 12, Machine Head. And coming to you from the suburbs of Chicago, I'm your host, Nathan Beaudry. And coming to you not from Long Island, John Matola. <laughs> not from Long Island. And if you heard the last episode, you'd get that. Exactly. You, you, so you have to listen to the last episode before you listen to this one or you'll be totally <laughs> lost. Um, so, you know, we're going to do kind of one of our all-killer um, well, all killer, mostly no filler episodes. Um, Machine Head's a big album. We really need to dive into it. There's tons of history that go into this one and um, lots of great songs. So, um, but I do have a few little quick updates, a uh, few things I did want to mention. So on social media, there's kind of like these three, there's kind of a four of us and uh, three other guys besides our podcast who kind of bounce back and forth a lot of things. And I want to shout them out. One of them is uh, T-Bone's Prime Cuts. Uh, he does this awesome, awesome radio show where he really does like the deep cuts. So, you know, one of the things that really drove me crazy about classic rock stations is always hearing the same 10, 12 songs. You know, you hear Baker Street, you hear China Road, you hear Werewolves of London, Sweet Home Alabama, Smoke on the Water, and then they kind of start it back up again. So, you know, he, he's playing tracks by all of those bands, but he's selecting, you know, deep cuts, you know. So he'd play, you know, instead of Sweet Home Alabama, he'd play um, I Ain't the One. Or, you know, instead of Smoke on the Water, he'll play, I don't know, Never Before or uh, something off Gen 3 or Gen f or Mark 3 or Mark 4. So, you know, he it's kind of what I always wished classic rock radio would be. And honestly, I'd probably still listen to classic rock radio if it wasn't those, all those songs. And then at the top of every hour, they started off with, I want to rock and roll all night, you know? Um, you know, what would be a good yeah. deep, or uh, deep, good kiss, deep cut to throw in there? Ooh, uh, right off the top of my head. Um, because I went to see Ace Frehley the other night. Oh. Um, and I was, yeah, I was uh, really, really happy with the set list. Uh, but one of my favorite deep cuts, which I don't know if it qualifies as deep anymore, but maybe because Kiss won't, themselves won't do it, is Parasite from the second album. Ah, all right. See, see, there which, you go. Like, and I'm sure that's what uh, Terry over at T-Bone's Prime Cuts would play. You know, he wouldn't, he's not going to play one of the, you know, the, you know, four main radio songs that Kiss has. But anyway, and he does, I think, yeah, we, we can all agree that you and I are definitely deep cut fans. Like, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. We, you know, so. we, we'll, we can, I'm sure we'll get into that a lot more when we get to smoke on the water today. Yeah. Um, another guy I really want to call out is um, Skinnered Reconsidered. Um, just a great show. I've talked about it before. Uh, I knew absolutely nothing about uh, Leonard Skinnered before that. And what he, his first season, he did the first album. His second season, he's 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 three songs in, I think, two of the the second album, called Second Helping. And I'm I've learned that I'm I'm a Leonard Skinner fan. Their stuff's awesome, and I never really appreciated it before. Even when he got to the point where he played Sweet Home Alabama, which everyone's heard a million times, I was like, you know, when you really look at this in the context of the album, that's a really good song, but just suffers from being completely overplayed. 
Um, right. So great podcast. He gave us a, he said some really nice stuff about us on his last episode, and that's not the only reason I'm saying nice stuff about him. His his show's great. It's a qu- nice short episodes gets to the point, and he's hilarious. He he has a really good take on the whole thing. And the last one, of course, is Sabbath Bloody Podcast. The first people to really shout us out. Um, our first person, I should say, is <laughs> a one man. Both of those guys, uh, all three of those guys actually are one man shows. So it takes two of us to to do what one of those guys do on their own. Um, but, you know, really great, uh, great content. He just did the Tear album by Black Sabbath. And now he is... He's he's done a a, a kind of a warm up to he's gone through all the the material that Dio did between Black Sabbath and re-entering Black Sabbath, um, and I'm I've listened to that episode, and it's great, and I'm looking forward to hearing his take on Dehumanizer coming out pretty soon. Ah, nice. Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of a forgotten one for me. Sometimes I kind of forget that that album came out, and that's really pretty good. I totally forgot about like I don't honestly I don't even know if I've ever heard it but I yeah. um I totally forgot Dio was in the band again you know and then I I saw that I was like oh yeah he was in there again like I almost kind of lost I lost track of the timeline cuz honestly I didn't pay too much attention to Sabbath after he left uh, Yeah it's really uh it's kind of interesting when you think about how much info we have today about everything up to the minute that happens with bands and I just remember back then, like knowing that Dio was back in Sabbath, like the Vinnie Apice version of Sabbath when the, when I saw the CD in the damn store. Yeah. And then I, and then I knew that he was out of Sabbath when I saw a new Dio CD in the store, like a year later. And I'm like, he's not, he's not in Sabbath anymore. And then I looked at the back cover and there were only three people on the picture and I like freaked out and I'm like, is, is Ronnie playing bass again? <laughs> and I was oh like, I got so excited. And then it's like, it wound up being like Jeff Pilsen or somebody that wound up not being part of like the touring band. Like they use somebody as a studio musician essentially. And they only had three like Dio and two other guys pictured. And so I would like flipped out cause I knew that Ronnie started off playing bass and yeah, it was like stuff like that. So it was like, in a way it was way more fun to find out about that stuff back then. You yeah, know? it was, it was cool. Yeah. You kind of just learned, like you heard like tales from your friends. Like I remember Jeff, you know, my cousin Jeff would, you know, he would mention something about Tommy Aldridge and you'd be like, Oh really? Like, you know, <laughs> half the time you don't even know like what, if that stuff was accurate or anything, but it was kind of, it, yeah. it definitely kept stuff really interesting. And, yeah. um, yeah, now everything is spelled out for you on Wikipedia or whatever. And yeah, unless you were up to date on with your Kerrang! or Hit Parade magazine, you didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then there was one other thing I just wanted to... So Ian DeRosier, who's this great French guy that follows us on... Um, uh, who follows us on Twitter. So we he posted this great video, which I want to share with you, because I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably haven't heard it before. And what it is, is, you know, we, we talked a lot in the pre- past episodes about all the thievery that Deep Purple were up to stealing these songs and these riffs, but there was yeah. something we missed and it's this, uh, what I'm going to play right now. And, um, just think of the song Fireball by Deep Purple and then listen to this song called Rockstar by Warpig, which came out one year earlier.
So there's definitely some similarities there. Mm-hmm. So it kind of loses it there, but you know, definitely that that verse riff is very very similar to Fireball. A little funkier almost. So anyway, I wanted to kind of yeah, yeah. share uh, that I'm... share that. That's one we we missed in the in the thievery. Those thieving bastards. <laughs> Richie even has a, uh, there's like a vi- uh, an interview with him on YouTube where he's, he talks about thievery, about his thievery specifically. He's he's very open about it, which is cool, you know, and it's, you know, it's just like, oh yeah, hey, I heard a thing I liked and we just stole it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think we talked about that in past episodes too, where we did that with music that we wrote, uh, us not being famous musicians. <laughs> But I mean, <laughs> how, but I mean, how dare you? <laughs> but, but I guess the point being is, is that when you're a fan of music, whether you make it or not, you just wind up doing it, I guess. Uh, yeah, you do it. on. But the, the great thing is like Richie is like kind of unapologetic about it. He just does it. And he's like, yeah, I did it. <laughs> he's like, no, I did that intentionally. I didn't. It wasn't like, oh, I was listening to a lot of that. It's like I wanted to sound like that. So I did it. Um, well, that's that's just Richie, though. He just. He's like, I'm just going to be a bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Of course, he's unapologetic about it. It's Richie. He's he's unapologetic about everything. Um, So, yeah, the only and the only other thing I had to kind of update was just kind of we're having YouTube problems. And it's very strange. It seems like I saw that. It seems like the. um, The bonus tracks are seem to seem to be consistently what get us. Um, Yeah, which is really weird. It is really weird because, you know, I mean, if you go on YouTube, you can find full albums, you know, you know, almost any album you type in, you find a full version of here's it. Here it is. Full album. And that you you are not allowed to monetize it. You're not allowed to put ads on it. YouTube can put ads on it and make money from it to, you know, pay the artists or whatever. And that's fine. Like, you know, we're not we're definitely not making money off of this. We're not looking to make any money. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's I think it's a shame because. Honestly, last week we did a we basically did like a two hour advertisement for to buy the Fireball twenty fifth anniversary edition CD or album, and they took it down. You know, so it's like, you know, for whatever it's, I don't know how many people would listen, but you know, it's we're, we're advertising this almost, and 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 we're not allowed to comment on it. So, well, it's it's weird though because I know I know that you and I talked about this a lot before starting the show about. Oh, can we use the actual music? Can't we? And somewhere along the line, I had heard something where us commenting over the songs as we do, like, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, fair use. Yeah, fair use. But it was something else like us, us doing like a commentary of that is different than uh, like over the. Uh, like a like a video clip or a uh, audio clip or something like that is different than if we just put up the album, which is it will, like you just mentioned, people do it anyways, and it's mm-hmm. been up there. Some of them have been up there for like oh, it posted ten years ago, and you oh, put yeah. up the other day, and it's taken down. I was actually thinking like uh, last week or whatever, uh, making a joke like, wouldn't it be funny if they like blocked our video for like the noise abatement tapes or something? Like <laughs> and that? then sure enough, I get an email. It says noise abatement tapes. Like I get an email for each individual song, and it was like noise, and it's, one of them was. Yeah, copyright strike or not? It's not. It's not a copyright strike, but it's a um, copyright 
material, backwards piano. <laughs> I'm like, it's like it's, it's literally people screwing around while they were drunk, and we can't even have it right. like us commenting over it. Right, and that's but, the, the great thing is somebody can put a full album up with no commentary. It's just basically like it is it all it is almost stealing because you could conceivably just listen to that instead of buying the album. But who the hell yeah. is going to listen to the album with us talking over it and be like, yeah, that's good enough. I don't need to buy in rock. Now I got this crappy, <laughs> uh, you know, this crappy low fidelity thing. I downloaded off of YouTube with two guys yammering o- over the songs. I'm just going to rock out to that. Like it's, it's inconceivable. No one would do that. And you know, we're, we're really the only purpose of this is to provide editorial and provide our, our exactly. comments. Um, you know, it is what it is. It's their, it's their songs. Honestly, it's like, I, I, if you asked the members of Deep Purple, I'm sure they probably wouldn't care, but some suits and some record label somewhere are the ones who put this, you know, or at least put the information into YouTube to create the algorithm that finds it and tells us we can't put it up. So if you're yeah. outside of the U.S., you can watch these on YouTube. You're great for that episode anyway. But for some reason, U.S., Guam, all U.S. territories, not allowed. So I posted it. I, I posted links to the video on our website and everything. And if you're outside the U.S., uh, enjoy. <laughs> and uh, we, we'll see how this episode goes. I don't know. But for, yeah. so, but for some odd reason, it seems like the original albums go without a problem, except for those two weird islands in Canada that don't allow it. But mm. um, the, 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 the bonus features just really trigger things. I don't know why. Yeah, well, that's that's great. So nobody can listen to the last episode because of the noise abatement tapes, but Smoke on the Water, arguably like the most <laughs> famous song in rock history. We could probably just plaster that yeah. all over this show and it'll probably be like they won't take it down for like 12 years. Right. Oh, put, yeah, we could do like Smoke on the Water for 10 hours just playing the song on and on and on. I, I had a lot of those when the kids were really young. Um, yeah. Find a, a song that will make them stop crying. And you, and you can find a video of that on YouTube. It's like this song for 10 hours and you could just put it on and put your kid <laughs> like for, for the kids. It was uh, what does the Fox say? Do you remember that song? Oh uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, they were like, you know, they were like 18 months or something. They got really sick with this horrible thing. And uh, that was like the only thing that would calm them down. They would just watch that video and just put it on for 10 hours until they fell asleep. Wow. It was great. Uh, I'm probably not going to work with smoke on the water. <laughs> Um, okay, so anyway, that kind of gives you update uh, updates on the show, what's been going on, um, and with that, um, you were uh, you, we got we're not going to do notes from the field, I guess, because it's not uh, <laughs> it's not deep purple related. But how was Ace Freely? Um, yeah, I'll just quickly comment that I uh, went to see Ace Freely uh, last Saturday, I think, um, in New Bedford, Mass. Okay. Um, Really small venue called The Vault, uh, which is uh, really cool. It's very reminiscent of um, some of the smaller venues around here, like um, like uh, you remember the the Strand or uh, yeah, the yeah. Met, the Met Cafe. Doesn't, or, like, Kiss, you know, doesn't Kiss have a thing called The Vault too? Uh, no, that's Gene Simmons' Vault, where he has just uh, uh, he, like for thousands of dollars sold like basically all of his crappy demos, uh, <laughs> uh, which um, I haven't really heard any of them, but some of the because they, you know, the, I guess the people that paid for that 
um, do not want to put it for free on YouTube, like post that kind of stuff because they paid so much money for it. It's something like 30 or 40 CDs. And it's literally from like the first like handheld recording song that Gene did when he was like a teenager to like um, Eddie and Alex Van Halen playing on the demo of Christine 16. Really? Uh, he from, So from, he sold the actual originals to like a single person and uh no no he like it's not like, like a wu-tang taken, album sort of situation is it? <laughs> no he had made this thing called the vault which i'd actually seen at the new jersey kiss expo back in december and it's like a like a big it's like a safe looking thing and on the so inside like a, of it it's like an elaborate box set yes exactly okay. and um you could you could buy it with the experience of having gene come to your house or uh, like a public meeting places uh, with hey, like, Gene, you know, go, Gene, go do my dishes. That sink's overflowing. <laughs> but it was for a while. It was like Gene, Gene, and he brought Ace along with them. And there were some videos of like them, like just acoustically jamming in like people's like living room, you know, wow. and they invited like 20 of their closest friends over stuff. So it was a pretty good gimmick, but it was like, um, um, I don't know where I was going with that. Oh yeah, that's right. That was called the vault, right? Yeah, I sorry, um, I derailed you, but um, <laughs> I just remember I I know I hear people talking about the kiss in the vault, and I yeah, wasn't sure. So it was uh, another uh, another great uh, marketing uh, money making scheme by Mr. Simmons. He's good at that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, if I had a lot of great ideas or stuff people would want to buy, I'd be doing the same thing. So, uh, anyways, I'm to sell my uh, old like, demos. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> You're not famous enough. <laughs> Can't even sell my old albums. Never mind my demos. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Ace was really, really good. I mean, I saw him with this band back in December, and they're much tighter now because they've been playing together for like another six or seven months since then. And they were doing, um, like I was talking about deep cuts. Like he did some Kiss songs, but he did like some of his own songs. I think he broke out like a Fraley's Comet song, which he. I think he notoriously doesn't usually do uh, mm. like some of his eighties stuff. Um, and he did a good mix of stuff, basically, in my opinion, I was having a really great time. Um, and yeah, it was just, uh, it was an awesome show. And I like it because it was a smaller venue. Like arguably, I think that smaller venue shows are a lot cooler. Um, oh, sure. Especially for like acts like this, uh, I'd rather see that than a stadium show. I th- I'm sure that I've mentioned this before. Um, yeah. Even an arena show, which is pretty cool. I mean, I like arena shows because they're not too big, but I like a club show. I like a theater show. I think it's just like really, just it's my thing. So um, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Awesome, good stuff. And he did play the aforementioned para- uh, Parasite, so which I think was the second or th- third song in. So I was like, yes, nice. So. All right, so the day that Fireball was released, it showed up in the press that Deep Purple would be recording a follow-up album in Switzerland using the Rolling Stones' mobile unit. Um, And unlike all the other previous albums that they'd done, this one was going to be done quickly. They just wanted to get in there, get it done in a couple weeks, and be done with it. They were under a newly formed Purple Records label that they were kind of heading with a bunch of other people. Uh, so they're not with Harvest anymore or with um, Tetragrammaton like they had been in the past. The management wanted to avoid uh, having these disjointed sort of recording sessions that lasted forever, like Fireball spanned many, many months. Uh, in Rock 2, they'd play some shows, they'd get some time in the studio. They were all recorded haphazardly over all different kinds of times and studios. They wanted more of like a kind of cohesive feeling of this album and all kind of being recorded at the same time. Um, Fireball 
didn't have as many songs that worked in a live setting, like anyone's daughter, for example. So they wanted to kind of have an album that had more tracks on it that they were, could record live or that they could play live, I should say. They went to America uh, for a month uh, prior to this, and they were headliners for the first time, which was really cool for them. They were really starting to become very big. Um, but, you know, the same problems with them touring constantly. Uh, Ian Gillen got really, really sick. Um, uh, they had, at one point, Roger Glover for one show did lead vocals because Ian Gillen couldn't perform. And then uh, that didn't work out, so they just packed it up and went back home. <laughs> Um, that wow. would be very interesting to get get um, copies of. You know, because the only singing yeah. I've really heard from Roger Glover is like a little bit on Butterfly Ball and his time with Episode Six. But um, that would be interesting. <laughs> trying to hear. I ma- imagine you're going to see Deep Purple and you hear kind of Roger Glover singing "I'm a Highway Star," like kind of <laughs> like he's very quiet, kind of understated. It would be. Um, <laughs> do child in time. <laughs> <laughs> I think they did. Well, I when they when they when Ian started to become unable to sing that song, I didn't didn't John Lord used to like do his kind of his vocal parts on the keys instead of him singing it. You know what? I don't know. That is way down the line where I am. Admittedly, don't have a lot of knowledge uh, of what those songs sounded like. Maybe what, 10, 15, even 20 years ago? If, yeah. Uh, he stopped not, singing it around Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how long ago it was that he stopped singing it, but um, it would have been a while ago. Yeah. But that would be interesting to hear, yeah. So while Ian is recovering, Blackmore and Pace decide to start kind of breaking away and doing their own, their babyface project with uh, Phil Linnett from Thin Lizzy. So they're kind of like toying with the idea of doing this tr- this trio of just the three of them, Pace, Blackmore, and, and Phil Linnett. Um, it didn't end up panning out. I've, I've seen a lot of uh, different back and forth about it, but and Ian Pace is quoted as just kind of saying that they loved Phil's vocals, but his bass playing wasn't quite there yet, like what, what they really needed. And um, I know he only got better, but I think that might have been pretty early for him. So mm-hmm. that didn't really pan out. Um, uh, while Ian was sick, Roger Glover was quoted as saying that... Um, you know, while while he was on the break, I got most of my ideas during the four weeks off just because I was able to relax. And, you know, he was kind of like admittedly happy to have the break, not happy that Ian's sick, I'm sure, but happy to have a break because they were working so much. Um, the ultimate idea for Machine Head was they wanted to record it in a like more of a live setting. So they wanted to like kind of record all together in like a, a set venue. And that's where they came to the casino in Montreux. Um which if anyone's familiar with Deep Purple, if, if you're familiar with anything by Deep Purple, you're probably familiar with the story of this album because it's all told in the lyrics of Smoke on the Water. So they, go, they, they decide they're going to go to this casino. They, they, they hook up with this guy named Claude Knobs, which is an awesome name. They get the Rolling Stones had this really, really expensive mobile recording studio. It allowed them to make records wherever they wanted but it was so expensive to operate that they had to rent it out to other bands while they weren't using it so one of the bands that used it on a few albums uh was deep purple and the idea was they'd go to the casino they'd set up this mobile unit they would perform live like they're actually playing a show record the album and then afterwards there was even 
a thought that they would play the album again live with an audience and record it as a double album, like a studio album and then the live versions of the same songs. That never ended up happening for a number of reasons, but it sort of happened because, as we'll talk about uh, next, when they do Made in Japan, they they end up doing a lot of those songs and kind of end up unwittingly releasing this album Made in Japan, which is somewhat a live version of Machine Head. So that was the plan. They go to see... Um, uh, they go to see Frank Zappa at the casino... And that's the last show that's going to be at the casino before they shut it down and Deep Purple takes it over to, to record this album. As we all know, some stupid with a flare gun shoots it in the ceiling, burns the place to the ground. Um, miraculously, everybody makes it out alive. Um, the lyrics from Smoke on the Water, a funky Claude was running in and out. Well, he was running in and out, saving people from the basement that didn't know how to get out. Um, and by just some absolute fluke, absolute miracle, no one's harmed, no one dies, but this casino, the place where they were going to do everything, had burned down. They had, they, were, they had been offered, I guess, to unload all their equipment in beforehand, but they said, no, let's let Frank Zappa finish up and we'll keep all of our stuff out of there, which ended up being a very good move. Not so good for Frank Zappa. He lost all of his uh, equipment. So that's kind of the the setup for the album. Um, Machine Head is if if you're not a musician, Machine Head is the little the little tuning peg at the top of the guitar or bass for tuning the strings. And Roger Glover came up with the idea, and he's he says it struck me as a good title. It had the word head, of course, which is always a good word to have. And then he says it, he said he thought the term had a certain menace to it the term machine head. So that's what they decide they're going to call the album. The reason they went to Switzerland is because they they discovered from their management that if you went outside of the country to record an album, you could avoid a huge amount of taxes. Uh, it's perfectly legal, but you, you if, you're, if you're recording it outside of the country, you don't have to pay the country all these taxes for recording it there. Hmm. So um, that's why they went to Switzerland in the first place. It was recorded in two weeks, um, everything they had done up to this point had previously been worked out in rehearsals. So they were just like ready to go in, bang it out in two weeks, get out and be done. The only exception was smoke on the water, which obviously they wrote right before they started recording. The problem was they had nowhere to record now. So they had to go find this other place to record. I guess that when they were recording smoke on the water, I think it was, must've been one of the first tracks they recorded. They start recording it at this other hotel with the mobile unit they're making so much noise that the uh, neighbors called the police and the police are like actually knocking on the door while they're recording the final take that we're all familiar with. And they are able to finally get through the take and uh, the song's recorded, but they realize they can't record there anymore. They have to find a third place, which ends up being this grand hotel, which was, uh, it's called the grand hotel, which was shut down for the season. They set up everything there in the corridor, right in the T end of a corridor. So like the drums are like in the base of the T, like the, the keys and the, um, and the guitars are in the, uh, upper part. And I think like the, the bass was on the other side and they record everything in here, but it was very, very difficult. The mobile unit was only able to get up to like the front door of the hotel. So they had to park the mobile unit outside the front entrance, run all the cables in. Then they had to 
go when they were done recording they'd have to go out of the area they're recording in through a bedroom onto a balcony climb over to another balcony go down the balcony through a bedroom through two doors onto the landing (sighs) down a winding staircase through a hall to the front door across the courtyard to the truck and then up the steps to the truck and then listen to the playbacks so they admit that they did a lot of songs in one take because they were tired of doing all this back and forth Can, can you imagine i remember in the studio I had, I had like the two doors you had to go through. And even that was annoying because we had double walls. So you had to open a door, open another door and then open a door and another door. So that was annoying enough. And I didn't have to climb any balconies. Um, Martin Birch, the wasp is on the scene again in the mobile unit. He sets up a CCTV so that he can see things. Um, that kind of, ha- that kind of helps things. And then one of the most impressive facts I find about this <clears throat> is that the album cost $8,000, or I'm sorry, 8,000 pounds to record, and that's 5,000 pounds was just for the mobile unit. So that's, pr- that's astonishing to me. Um, I don't have any, do you have any sense of what it even costs like to record an album these days? No. I wonder if you look up like, um, you know, I'm sure you're talking about like a million dollars to record an album or like what if what about Chinese democracy it must have cost like 20 million dollars because it took them forever (laughs) but you know like I mean it was done so so quickly like it's just it's incredible to me um so that's the kind of lead up to this album a lot of a lot of stuff going on but um one of the reasons I don't think we're really going to do a 25th anniversary or anything of this is Everything, everything from the sessions is on the album, with the exception of one song, which I think we should cover today anyway, which is When a Blind Man Cries. That's the only song they recorded that didn't make it to the album. It became a B-side, but um, other than that, everything you hear is, was recorded there. And the, the special edition of Machine Head is mostly a lot of like the quadraphonic mix or the remixes and remasters. It's not a lot of other material because they didn't have any. Right. So with that, we get to the album art which is right here. You see um, very iconic album cover. Once again, you've got the five heads of Deep Purple kind of floating there. Um, Deep Purple. So they took like a big sheet of metal and they stamped Deep Purple Machine Head into it. And, you know, that's what you get. You know, when, uh, once again, when I look at these albums, every album cover I look at, I think, oh, it's a painting or it's it's graphics, you know, but... They're all just like photos, all of them. They're, they're, there's not a lot of additional stuff. These are just actual photos. All of them stood in front of the plate of metal that was stamped Deep Purple Machine Head. They took the picture, and you can even see the photographer right on, under the H and the E. That's the photographer. You see his arm standing there holding it, holding the camera. Oh, yeah. So he's actually in the photo, but it's kind of it's so distorted you can't really quite tell. I mean, I think the only <laughs> the only person that might have gotten the raw end of the deal here was John Lord, who <laughs> basically his whole face looks like a teardrop. He looks like he's uh, he looks like he uh, yeah, he looks like, like uh, Avengers Endgame, like he's just <laughs> <laughs> vanishing there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a weird cover. Yeah, kind of Ian Pace poking yeah. in from the side. Richie Blackmore is just like from the nose up. Ian Gillen, at least his whole face is in there, and Roger Glover with his standard issue uh, kind of cowboy hat that he wore around that time. Um, yeah, but it's it's definitely an odd album cover, keeping uh, with the times. Like if you 
the like the 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 albums from around that time, like what was it, seventy two? Seventy two, yeah. Seventy, seventy two, like like this, um Black Sabbath Paranoid. Oh uh, Par- uh, Paranoid's a that's a really wacky album cover. Yeah, there are album covers like that. Like those two, I always kind of lumped in together because I always thought like those were kind of my two like early 70s, like heavy albums. But they were also really I lumped them together as the the weirdest album covers <laughs> that I've ever seen. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I, I mean, this is an iconic album cover, but it's it's a little yeah. weird. And I mean, but nothing like Sabbath had a lot of weird album covers like Sabotage is like totally crazy. Yeah, They're like standing in front of a mirror, but like it's not the reflection in the mirror; it's just them again standing, looking the same way. And it's like his geese are wearing like those tight pants, and it's just weird, kind of an overall weird album cover. Yeah, so this one is definitely it, it's cool because this cover is very creative. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, one thing I was going to ask you before that uh, was if there was an original picture of them before they distorted it but you answered my question by saying that there is this is the yeah, original that, picture it sounds like so that's the yeah just the 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 photographer uh was standing right there with them and the photographer's name was Shep Sherbel and some interesting information about him uh looking into him he's born in New York City um in, in the 60s he went to London he photographed a lot of musicians he photographed the Beatles the Who Keith Moon Cat Stevens Jimi Hendrix Rolling Stones Lotted a Grand Funk Railroad. Um, and then after that, in the mid-70s, he's like, okay, I'm done photogra- photographing beer uh, bands. And he goes to the White House and is like a White House correspondent and does like photojournalism covering the White House and Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the photo shoot that he did for this, the camera that he used to take the photo for the machine head, he sold it to Roger Glover. And Roger Glover got his first Nikon camera from that. Just very interesting. And the, cool. this photographer, Shep uh, Sherbel, passed away last year, actually, August 18th, 2018. So rest rest in peace to a very well-rounded photographer there. Um, so the back cover of the album is kind of like the inverse. You've got the deep purple stamp wow. in reverse. And then to drive the point home, there's uh, presumably Roger Glover's bass head with his machine heads on there to drive home the album cover. The gatefold... Um, Pretty good. We can break down the sides there. Uh, it's very interesting. You see um, they label some of the names, but not all of them, but it's kind of all the people that were involved in the album. You can see Martin Birch there. You can see a lot of Ian Gillen. You can see Roger Glover, uh, Richie Blackmore. Uh, Claude Nobbs gets a shout-out. He's got kind of like, it almost looks like um, John Lord saw his look and wanted to take it from him. Those glasses <laughs> and that mustache. <laughs> it's like, oh, Claude, I like what you're bringing there. It came with a lyric insert, which you can see right here, in the, I guess the first release anyway. So there's the left side of the gatefold. The only person getting called out there is Claude Nobbs. Uh, Ian Gillen's like in a bathrobe smoking and recording vocals. There's a picture of the casino burning down. What's that in the top? That guy's wearing a... Let's see if I can bring that over. Stone Roller. Somebody, It's a shirt that says Stone Roller on the back of it. Hmm. I don't know what that means. Uh, you got the the machine heads again of of Roger Glover's Rickenbacker, and then there's some text in the center which says, "This album was written and recorded in Montreux, Switzerland, between 6th and 21st December 1971. To thank by name everyone involved would be tedious, but one must be named Claude Nobbs, without whom, etc. 
To him, this album is gratefully dedicated. And then they call out Jeremy Bear, Ian Stewart, and Nick with the Rolling Stones mobile unit, and we're pleased that they did. The townspeople of Montreux, after their initial shock, helped us a lot, and we thank them too. Maybe that's what Stone Roller was, was something to do with the mobile unit. Hmm. Rolling Stones? Stone Roller. Know. Yeah, that makes sense. It rolls around. Stone Roller. I, I need no further research. I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the right side of the gatefold, you've got the band members, uh, Ian Pace at the top right, Ian Gillen in the center, John and Lord just below him, and then Roger Glover off to the side. And then I read somewhere um, that Tony Edwards had called uh, Roger Glover to the office um, and said, hey, can you tell me which pictures of you you would like to use? And Roger Glover said, sure. And he picked all of these, um, all of these pictures of him. And he called all the other members of the band, but everyone else blew him off. So that's why there's more pictures of Roger than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> so you see quite a few pictures of Roger in the, in the gatefold, but uh, deservedly so. And uh, yeah, the, the, we're back to that lyric sheet that was a, written in calligraphy. The lyric sheet there, you can get a little zoom in. That's well, kind of pixelated, but it's all the lyrics to the song. All written in calligraphy, and that's the that's the album as it was released. Nice. So that's the that's the setup right here. Before we get into the songs, um, just a, you know, a kind of an iconic uh, album cover, uh, a unique story behind the album, uh, some really good stuff. I I find like I, I a lot of the albums that I really dig are albums that were done. I don't want to say outside the studio because I guess anywhere you'd record is a studio, but done on like in a location with like personality to it. Like another <clears> one that jumps to head is like the Blood Sugar Sex Magic. They they went to that studio. It, it was a studio, but it was like also a house, and it was like they lived there while they were doing it. And you kind of like get that whole sense from the album of them being in that location rather than just going to the studio this day or going to the studio that day. And you get that sense from this album mm -hmm. too. It's so cohesive, and there's no mistake to why it's. You know, probably it must be their best-selling album of all time, right? If if I had to guess, yeah, it's, I it's, would think it's got to be. Um, well, anyway. if you're if you're thinking about of all time, I would say that, or I would guess that Perfect Strangers would probably have trumped it. Yeah, that's quite possible. I'll, yeah, would not as guess. not as iconic, but 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 such a big deal when people had waited, you know that point well at that point it will only been about 12 years but from thinking deep purple would never be exist again to oh my god they're back and it's our favorite lineup everyone must have went yeah. crazy so the album starts with it's like hard to believe it we haven't even talked about this song yet but it starts with the most epic driving song of all time highway star That goes up that octave on the bass. It's just pure magic. And I mean, everybody has to have heard this song at this point, but it's just listening to it outside of classic rock radio. It's just such a great song that... And I don't know if that's triple, quadruple tracked or if he recorded, if it's just some sort of echo on the vocals. 
Yeah, that's great to hear Ian's vocals kind of coming in like that. Yeah, and, and the headphones is coming in from the, the side, this side and that side. It's just coming from all over. It's almost like a declaration of like, yeah, baby. <laughs> exactly, I'm back. Exactly, yeah. And a lot of double double tracking of the vocals on this album, which we haven't heard before. Yeah. So this song, yeah, usually Ian's really sparing with that. Same thing with Richie's guitar parts too. Right, and when he brings in like a double tracking on that, it's like something special. So, so this song was written on the bus. They were on the tour bus, and one of the reporters on the bus, one of the music journalists, said, "Hey Richie, how do you write a song?" And Richie said, "Like this." and just started chugging along and then Ian Gillen jumped in on the lyrics and the the story goes that they performed it that night I'm sure it needed a little more work but they probably performed a, 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 a infant version of the song that night and John Lord says in the back of the bus on the way to the show they were you know they they were they played it in soundcheck that night and that they were looking for a new song a new opener at from speed king and they went with this one definitely a great opener john learn john john lorgan this must be dual tracked here too so incredible Lord says this is quasi a quasi Bach sequence. Well, John Lord more successfully hiding his classical roots these uh, these days. Yes. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of weaving them in there a little more subtly. <laughs> this is a great little. quintessential driving song really is there a better driving song than this it's like uh, I submit there is not you could argue uh, heavy uh, text the song heavy metal thunder what's that song um, head out on the highway born, born to be wild yes born to be wild thank you it's very much in the yeah, same maybe. vein I'm taking. I like this one better. <clears throat> yeah, I'm taking this. We're we're a biased, admittedly, but I'm I'm taking this song over that. And then great solo by Richie coming up. Ah, oh, the best. I don't know. I mean, you could tell by also how they double or triple track these parts that they obviously took time with them. Yes, and, and he's, his harmonies on this are, are just perfect. His bends here. His chromatic bends. Now he's doubling it on the other guitar.
this part right here would lay the groundwork for metal for decades. Just yeah. I mean, think of Iron Maiden. Think of like the harmonies that uh, Metallica does. It's it's all in the solo here. And he's not doing he's not doing simple harmonies like doing them a third up or anything. His harmonies are all over the place. Like he's playing two completely different guitar lines that happen to harmonize with each other, rather than just doubling it. Yeah. And Richie said that he normally does all of his solos spontaneously, but this yeah. th- this this one he he composed and wa- and it plays at the same time same way every time. Yeah, there's no way this could have been off the cuff. No. <laughs> off the cuff that would have been insane. Love how it ends. John Lord shakes the shakes the organ, gets those <laughs> gets those um yeah those uh those tubes rattling. It's a uh, great great sound to it. And just that uh that <coughs> that like uh, Ian Pace, just that the symbol thing that he does, how he yeah. ends the songs. And it gets a little like, lost. He'll do it live. Yeah, it gets a little lost with Roger Glover just really going up high in the neck. Really uh, great ending. Uh, that's- no, I I never lose it. I always hear it. <laughs> I always hear all of it. You you heard it here, Roger. Uh, John is a better a better Roger Glover fan than me. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you could definitely tell just from the opening that this album had more. Uh, intention, less spontaneity. They worked out more of their parts. They took more time, uh, like you said, composing the parts because there's no way from like Ian's vocals being tracked like that, John Lord's organ, Richie's solo, that they didn't work that out. It wasn't intentional and it's brilliant. And from a song that came so so spontaneously, just in the mm-hmm. oh, here's how we wrote a song, and then it turns into this beautifully composed, pretty perfect rock song. Yeah, it really is. So I would say that that is no, uh, no surprise that let's see, Highway Star, that we both gave it four point five Pilgrim hats. Four point five Pilgrim hats, the highest rating that we have dished out so far. Yes. We're saving those fives. <laughs> I don't know what the hell we're saving them for at this point. <laughs> I know, right? It's hard to... And and because... I, I will admit with Highway Star, I'm a li- I, I did listen to this in a new light. It is one of those songs that I've heard so many times against my will. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say against my will. That sounds bad, but I've, I've heard it so many times <laughs> um, without be, it being my intention to hear it. You know, you're, you hear it on on TV and a show and a movie, there was this video game I remember used to play where they had like this MIDI version of it playing rock and roll racing. I don't know if anybody remembers this game. Me and Paul used to play it all the time and they'd have, they had like three songs. It was this one. It was born to be wild. And there was one other song and it was just like crappy MIDI versions of it. 
And I feel like I've heard that MIDI version of this song more than I've heard the original. The but actual yeah, song. I'm, I'm a little tainted by that. The same with Smoke on the Water. But listening to it like like for what it is, it's such a great opener, such a great concert opener, such a great album opener, such a great rock song. I stand by my 4.5 Pilgrim hats. Yes, me too. That's a this is a a declaration of intent. They're they're coming, they're yep. smashing through and they're just like, "We're back, baby." You know, it's like or we're we're here, baby. They didn't really go anywhere, I guess. Uh, <laughs> we're back from but, tour. <laughs> but um just just the whole because I was listening to the whole album mm-hmm. or after the whole album and you could hear I mean, if they have like certain instruments and it was around the same time, so they were playing similarly and everything to like Fireball. And it's like, because Fireball was the, your, your, the previous album, but it's like, this one was like a little bit more like, do you know what I'm trying well, to I think, say? Oh, you said with the, the intent, it's, it's more intentional. Fi- yeah. Like, and Fireball, Fireball is a collection of songs more yeah. so than this. This is an album. This is like, yeah. we meant it. It all sounds, I don't want to say it all sounds the same, but it all sounds cohesive. Cohesive, like it's done at the same time, done at the same, you know, it's one of those albums that you put it on, you listen to it from start to finish, blows you away, and then you're done. Fireball is like, you know, it's ups and downs. It's anyone's daughter. It's it's just all over the place, even though <laughs> well, there's a lot think, of good stuff. Well, I think overall, the, the, the songs are better. The production is better. Uh, which is uh, because I'm thinking like, oh, okay, here it comes Machine Head. Just like every other album, we're like, oh, we're going to listen to this and it's going to be like the same old album or how are we going to be objective about it or anything. But it's like after hearing the progression of Deep Purple, I can see how from In Rock even, Fireball, it's like it's better produced than In Rock. Oh, yeah. Um, just just because it is. And it's it's better better songs than fireball and it's better playing than both of them because obviously been playing live every night for two years. Yeah. Two more so years. I, so I think that that's like, this was the, this was the time that they released the perfect album for them. It was very, um, I don't know, just all the songs on it are great. So right off the bat, <clears throat> you know, it's going to be, this is going to be a, this is going to be a great album. Uh, before you do the next track, uh, may I request that you turn the volume down just a little bit on that because it was it was pretty loud on my end on the songs. Well, yeah, oh, yeah, sure. for the songs. Yeah, while we were commenting. Yeah, this might be mastered a little heavier than the other songs. <laughs> okay, all right. I'll bring it down for the next track, which is maybe I'm a Leo. I really like this one. <clears throat> Great opening, just riff. The song was originally titled Blues Riff. <laughs> <laughs> See, like even like the verse vocal, you can you could pick out how Ian sounds the same as he did on Fireball, but it's like it's it's just a little bit better. Yeah, the production's much better. 
And it's funny because you'd think they're recording in all these fancy recording studios, but recording studios probably were at a prime. And here they're recording in a mobile unit, which sounds cheaper, <laughs> for lack of a better term, and it sounds a lot better. And again, I really like how the band, you can hear the room reverb in the song. Like, yep. it sounds live. Yep, totally. You can hear that hallway they're recording in. So after it was titled yeah, it Blues so Riff, they titled this song just before midnight because that's when they recorded it. And nice. the word on the street is this was done in one take. I don't doubt it. And the inspiration from the song comes from the John Lennon song, How Do You Sleep? Roger Glover liked the fact that the riff in that comes in on the offbeat rather than starting on the downbeat. So he wanted to write a song like that. So he wrote this riff that comes in, comes in. Dun, 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 dun. So that's what he based gotcha. it around. He also states that it came in on the fourth rather than the root of the chord, which is something different he wanted to try as well. And you can tell the difference between a Im improvised Richie solo which this is, and almost everything still, else he ever does. It's still really good. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's, ac it's excellent, but it's just different. It's He's got that yeah. improv improvisational style to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is a very bluesy, like Billy Preston sounding keyboard solo. I love it. that like whirly sort of Fender Rhodes feel to it. Some yeah, sort I like of how they're always trying different stuff. Yeah. Some sort of electric piano. I'm not quite sure what it is, but it sounds great. Now, one thing that I love right after this is what Ian Pace is doing on the drums all over this. Yes. He's coming in all these like, kind of off beats. Ian Pace just never lets you down. Like, listen to this. I think there's a reason that drummer is the only job in Deep Purple that's never been <laughs> filled by anyone else. <laughs> Who the yeah. hell else is going to do it? It's he's so incredible. Yeah, it was just really going nuts on this song, if you think about it. I think he is on, on most songs, but it... it He's so clean about it that you almost miss it because he's keeping the whole song together, but yet going crazy with fills at the same time. Yeah. And to think this is the first take and only take. I mean, you'd think he'd mess up a fill or someone would mess something up. No, not these guys. <laughs> no. At this point, they would have been all playing their instruments for 15 years or so. And not just playing them, but playing them constantly. They'd all been in multiple, multiple bands. really good stuff. Yeah, maybe I'm a Leo. 
Really good one. Uh, riff composed by Roger Glover. Which is another four hats. Four hats from you. Yep, four hats from you and me. I was going to say you and you. <laughs> me and me. You and, you and me. I'll give it four hats um, twice. Yeah, this was like the... I don't know, I'm looking at all these songs and I'm I'm like... Um, I guess that's the closest <laughs> you could get on this album to what you'd call a filler song because there are really no filler songs on this album. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, it is. It, that's the filler song on... <laughs> on machine head and it's great yeah so it's it's not even i maybe i should take that back there are no fillers on this album for for by machine head standards that's a filler but that's not to say uh yeah it's not great because it is yeah but i mean i never skip it like usually mm -hmm. these a song after highway star you'd think like oh that's going to be absolute dog crap <laughs> <laughs> Whatever's coming after this, it's not going to be any good. It's going to be so boring, but it's, well, it's actually... It's kind of like Speed King. It just kicks your ass, and then it goes into No, 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 which I like almost maybe better than Speed King. It's because it's just yeah. such a rocking song, and it's kind of used that same formula. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. It's just a different... A different feel, a different vibe. Um then you know the first the opening track obviously i mean the first one just kind of punches you in the gut and then then this one just kind, just of, kind of is a slow a slow rocker like you said a blues a blues like but like a heavy kind of blues feeling yeah all right do we give ratings on that or yeah i said earlier yeah. we have four four hats four hats four hats four hats each for Maybe I'm a Leo. Four across the board. Which I really like that song because it's it's just really it's really laid back and bluesy as opposed to um Highway Star. And it's um it just it kind of it's like those some of those other songs we were talking about uh on some of the previous reviews that we were doing, that it just it really it grooves and it's a head bopper and it's just, it's really good. The, whereas Highway Star is a headbanger. <laughs> yeah. Head, it goes from headbanger to headbopper. For sure. Yeah. And then, after our headbangers and our headboppers, we go to Pictures of Home. We talk about Ian Pace. Holy crap, what a way to open a song. Yeah. Good stuff. It's China chugging guitar. This reminds me of kind of their version of uh, Immigrant Song. Hmm. Something about it, the vocals and the chugging guitar. <laughs> Richie Blackmore has a quote. He said, the rest of the band were a little bit worried about Ian singing um, about eagles and snow. Why? I don't, I, I don't, I have a feeling he's making that up. But then he says, Richie said, Eagles and Snow, sounds good enough to me, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Richie. Love that little guitar part that he does there. Again, doubling the guitar. Yep. 
But again, like you were saying before, you can hear from all these songs, even with the doubling of the parts and the the overdubs they were doing, that these are still really live sounding, live feeling songs. Yep. And I love what he does with the vocal here. Yeah, that second little harmony comes in at the end. Yeah, it's almost like they had time to kind of open up and experiment a little bit. Yeah. And get more intentional with their songs. Yeah, even though they only did this in two weeks, it's like, the, but that's all they did. And they, it's it's a big difference from, as you know, if you go into a studio with your songs all worked out and, and arranged, you have the freedom to do that. But if you're going into the studio still working on your songs, you're wasting all that <clears throat> studio time doing that rather than putting those little touches on it. Yeah. They were just better prepared. And through no fault of their own with the old albums, they just never were given the time. So John Lord said the interesting chord change in this song that you're hearing right now. He said about Richie, I think he picked that up off some Eastern European shortwave radio, probably the one built into his hat. <laughs> oh, I love it. They're even they're even ragging on the hat. <laughs> and that's like an interview from like, you know, 10 years ago or something, too. Oh, that's great. And then, and then they... Ian Gillen says he does get Bulgarian radio signals coming through his head quite a lot. <laughs> this is long after they had split with Richie, so still poking fun at him, having some fun. This is an incredible organ solo. Right here. Wild. Glover, Roger Glover in one of the documentaries saying that there's John Lord, he messes up the note, but he's like, you just do it again and again and again until it sounds right and then you move on, you know? And he said he did that second chromatic run that he did the second part as a, oh, and here comes Glover's bass solo. This is wild. Even give throw Roger Glover a bone with that one. Some good stuff. I, but I love it. Even when these guys do something like atonal like that, it still sounds so good. And you get that false ending with that just kind of chaos. And then the drums come back in. So John Lord did that chromatic run, and then he he overdubbed it with the he 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 did a second track because he didn't think he could do it clean enough. But yeah. in one of the documentaries, you see him do it with both hands. Like, he's like, see, it's really hard to do. And then he does it like perfectly. He's like, yeah, that's why I, that's why I did a second track. And you're like, <laughs> I think you could have done it with one track. But this is one of those songs I feel like the more I listen to it, the more I like it. Yeah, this is really good. It's a little more fast, up-tempo. But still, the whole album has that kind of laid-back feel to it. Yeah. It, yeah, but it's not like, too laid back. Yeah, but it's like they're doing the same sort of heavy material that they're doing it in rock, but they're doing it more effort, effortlessly. Like they're doing it like it's coming more naturally to them. They're like, oh yeah, here we'll just we'll bang out this song with like where John Lord does like some absolutely insane chromatic run on the keyboard, and you know it's just no, no big deal. 
Well, the production on this whole album too is a lot cleaner. Yeah. Um, than say in rock, um, a lot more similar to Fireball. Uh, but I think better that I mean, if you're gonna say that the the production because who did who produced Fireball was it the Wasp? Yep, the Wasp. So he was there for both of them. So let's just say I think he was the production rock too. Well, the the production on Fireball and Machine Head seemed to be about even, but maybe now that I'm thinking about it, the production is a little bit better, but it's got to be mostly the performances. Yeah, the the performances, I think, are better because the band's not as rushed. Yeah. And I mean, like I was saying before, even in that song, there were a few kind of like, um, um, I guess, would you call them that? Like atonal kind of parts or like notes that are kind of like Roger's <clears throat> bass solo. It doesn't sound like very pleasing to the ear. Yeah, like boom, it hits boom, a couple boom, of notes there that you think. Yeah. It's like a little, a little yeah. bit off, but yeah. Yeah. They're, they're kind of like these offbeat notes or even when the, the, the false ending where they go, you know, and yeah. you're just kind of like, Ugh, but it's like, it's, it's not Ugh, like it's bad. You're just kind of like, when these guys do it, it fits. It right. makes sense. And and it, they're doing it. They're, it's jarring on purpose. Yeah, uh, they're just masters at it. They're great. So, um, so pictures of home. Wow, I, you gave it four and a half, and I gave it four. I, I admit, it slightly- I, I, ch- I changed my rating this morning. <laughs> I was like, I was listening to this. I was, uh, I, I was working out, and I was listening to this, and I was like, screw it, I'm giving it four point five. <laughs> it, was, it was too good. Well, that's, that's okay. I was. Thinking of maybe doling it out a bit of a higher rating, but I'm just going to keep it the same. No, you go with go with your gut. I just had I had to crank that one up because I there's something about the chorus of that Ian singing of the chorus and everything. It's just so it just gets me. I just love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely just another just another great song. Uh, from the band uh, perfectly executed speaking of great songs from the band let's do another one this one starts <laughs> off <laughs> this one starts off like a like kind of a reggae a reggae number this one's uh, never before <clears throat> I love the way this one starts off it's very unexpected but also because you hear the room again yep. you hear the reverb oh, of yeah. the room on Richie's guitar Like you can just close your eyes and just picture them all jamming yeah. in this room. It kind of takes a little turn, but I, there's there's one interview with Glenn Hughes where Glenn Hughes is talking about Richie talks about oh I don't want to be in a funk band that's why I left and Glenn Hughes is getting all mad and saying Richie Blackmore is a damn funky guitar player and he doesn't even know it <laughs> and you hear that at the beginning of this you know like he, he says he didn't want to do funk but that is funky the intro to this. Eh, he doesn't want to admit it. He's funky. This has got to be their catchiest chorus of any song they've ever written. Or song. And it's astonishing to me that this song... So this was supposed to be the single for the album. 
This is hmm. written by Ian and Roger. And Richie says we were. This is the song we're the most excited about on the record. They were all 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 in on it. This is our single. When a blind man cries is the B side. We're releasing it, and it flopped. <laughs> wow. And then Ian Gillen got in a huge fight with John Coletta, one of their managers. Um, and he's saying that John Coletta didn't promote the album well enough, but that's a bunch of crap because. It was on promos on TV and everything. It's got this nice little chorus section here, or a bridge. We talked about it, I think, with Demon's Eye. Couldn't believe that, at least in the US, that wasn't something we heard growing up on the classic rock. And this is another one. Yeah. I can't believe we didn't hear this on ZLX growing up. I know. Like, it's such a great rockin', poppy. It's got all the elements you need, you know? Great guitar solo. But but never really, I never heard it other than listening to this album. Great tone from Richie. Nice. Great. They, they're great at doing those little false endings. <clears throat> so this was the album. This was the one they fought with the record company when they put this album out or they, or they got it together. And they said, this is our single. And in the United States, I must I don't know if it's Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers said, you guys are out of your minds. Smoke on the water is a single. And the band said, no, no, you're crazy. It's got to be, this is our single. And uh, John Lord has an interview with John Lord where he says, well, how wrong can you be? <laughs> <laughs> Great little electric piano ending here. And it's four minutes long. They cram in guitar solos. They cram in organ solo, a little drum drum exit there. They've got the reggae sort of intro. I mean, it's, they, they covered yeah. it all. Yeah, my favorite, still my favorite part of listening to that intro is just hearing the room. Yeah. Uh, just the way that it was captured on tape. Uh, I, maybe just everything about it. The I never really thought of it until you said it as a reggae-ish type of, but it's it's just whatever whatever it is just all comes together and it's like really cool and then the usual deep purple thing they take a sharp left turn and nail it. It's like we never learn. They're like, oh, I see where they're going with the song. Nope, I never, <laughs> I we're never right. <laughs> Even if you heard the song a hundred times, it'll be interesting to hear some of the later albums that we don't know. Yeah. And see if they still do that. <laughs> if they're like, oh, when we really don't know the song, we're like, oh, this is, and then, oh, I didn't see it going that way. Well, that'll be, yeah, that'll definitely be interesting uh, for us. I don't know um, if they abandoned that. I don't remember as much of that from Mark Three and Mark Four, but I've admittedly been on a Mark Three and Mark Four uh, fast since we started the <laughs> podcast because I wanna, I wanna hit it like it's fresh, you know. 
Well, me too. I mean, the only, I mean, I pay attention to David Coverdale's shenanigans, but that's about it. <laughs> it's hard not to. Encore. <laughs> what? Encore. Encore. <laughs> the two. We said, for, for, our, for our listeners out there, me and Nate will just send each other pic- crazy pictures of David Coverdale that just pop up like on, on Instagram or maybe we're searching for him or maybe you find him on Twitter, but it's usually of him just like, you know, using his microphone as a big dick or there was one the other day. What was it? It was just like, like I had one of like a close up of his face and he's looking off to the side. So you send me another one of him with the microphone, but he also looked really bored. <laughs> he was like, so- he had the microphone like in his crotch, like this big crotch rocket. And then, but he's like, he's got this look in his face. Like, hmm. like, <laughs> like his, his heart wasn't in it. He's like, I got to do this for the fans. But to be honest, I didn't want to come to work today. <laughs> I was just like, I'm, I'm 70. My back hurts. Uh, but it's from but, yeah, uh, from, post- from carrying on that big schwanz all the time. <laughs> we had those two pictures side by side, and I was looking at them, and I texted you back and said, "Oddly enough, you could probably capture bo- caption both of these pictures." Pensive Coverdale, <laughs> yes, because, because he looked just really pensive in both of them. Like one of them, he's got like you know his his fist resting on his. His chin, he's looking off to the side like a close-up. Hmm. Yeah, well, and the other one, he's got a big crotch rock, and he's like, hmm. <laughs> he's thinking, he's, yeah, it's um, it's amazing. Yeah, sometimes our, our text messages will just be back and forth pictures of David Coverdale, and that's all we'll say to each other that day. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, so are you ready for the next episode? Yeah. Here's a crazy picture of Coverdale, <laughs> whatever he's up to today. <laughs> or actually, yeah, there are, there are some days where we don't even say words to each other. I'll just get a picture of Coverdale from you. And then it's just. <laughs> I mean, what more do you have to say? They don't need captions. That's the best part about it. No, I make up my own, <laughs> um, which is great. Um, but anyways, yeah. So um, never before for Pilgrim Hats, not surprisingly. Nope. And I toyed with giving that 4.5 because. It's really, it's a great song. This album is tough because I am also uh, kind of torn between like, I don't want to just hand out these great ratings for it because it's machine head, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but at the same time, I'm listening to one of them just like, damn, it's good. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe it is justified. Yeah. But uh, like, not that anybody's out there standing over me being like i know what you're doing but it's like i think it's a standard i hold to myself like i just didn't want to hand out great ratings because i know that it's a classic album but i guess like i've gained more of an appreciation for the album being what a classic it is because the songs are damn good they're fantastic it's 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 actually astonishing and it's like i know i feel like we, we talk about all these albums like we're hearing from the first time but um you know, I think we're hearing them in the most critical light we ever have. And and that's that's what's kind of making the difference here. It's it's just thinking about these songs in a way that we never did before. You know, before it'd just be on in the background or you're driving around with it. And now we're like yeah. sitting down and really thinking about them and just like, wow, these songs are good. And I think that's the difference. I think that's it keeps surprising me how we can keep approaching these songs that way. Um much differently because we're actually pushing ourselves to be critical about them and we're going to talk about them. So, yep, totally. All right. So that closes out side one. And then after that, can you imagine getting this album for the first time 
turning it over and hearing the riff that would change rock history forever. It's a great build-up. Ian comes in on the hi-hat and the organ starts doubling it. Oh no, there's no yeah, organ like the yet. layers. It's just the hi-hat and then the bass. Yeah, I've come to appreciate how they built layers up in this song. A lot of tension gets built up and then right when the last part comes in, boom, they hit you with the vocals. I like to listen to what John's doing in the song because I feel like it's underrated. Everyone focuses obviously on the riff, but. Yeah. But the interplay between Richie and John on the song is, is amazing. And this is the only. But yeah, John Lord does a lot of interesting stuff here. This is the only song that they wrote during the recording sessions. Everything else was mapped out in advance. Oh, wow. Roger, when they, when they were watching the casino burn down, Roger wrote the phrase smoke on the water on a napkin while they were in the hotel and the smoke came across the lake and then they didn't really do anything with it right away but and John Lord says we honestly didn't think smoke on the water was hit material. How wrong can you be? <laughs> Very. So this verse tells the story feel bad talking over it, but I feel like everyone knows this freaking story by now. <laughs> uh, Frank Zappa just started playing the song King Kong. This guy shoots a flare gun into the ceiling, which was all like dry wood and reeds, and it sounded really like a complete violation. And um, Frank Zappa stayed on stage and ushered everyone else. I feel like Frank Zappa and Claude Nobbs are the heroes of this story, getting everyone out to safety and I still think just if you've seen pictures of this and heard the story, it's a miracle that nobody was even hurt. Wow. Um, and like I said before, the police during this take you're hearing right now were coming, trying to shut the recording down because they were making too much noise. And they would, as rumor goes, and I'm sure it's all been dramatized over the years, but they're like holding the door shut, uh, barricading the door so that they can get the take finished. I always thought this was a good solo, though. Great solo, yeah. Dis despite how overplayed the song may be. John Lord says about this song, it's been very kind to us, that song. It's been worth five figures a year each, closer to six. And then he says its working title was Dirt, Dirt, Dirt. I love their working titles. Working so titles lazy. are great. <laughs> No, I don't know if it's because we've heard this solo so much, but I feel like this is not an improvised Richie solo. That, that way it... When it comes back in, um, yeah. I, he does that live too. He doesn't 
he always brings that element back into it. Now this part I feel like they there was not in the radio edit, this last verse. Every time I hear it, I think, oh, that's this sounds different. Cause this is a song that I heard mostly on the radio. Right. I could be wrong, but this this verse always sounds more new to me. One interesting thing about the chorus, listen to the chorus really closely. So they do smoke on the water, a fire in the sky, smoke on the water, and then right back to the riff. So it's like one and a half choruses, you know, which is kind of interesting Hmm. if you stop and think about it. Yeah. Yeah, they actually, never, it is. They never, like, finished the second thought. Roger's jumping up an octave on the bass there. Roger says, uh, he writes about staying at the hotel um, where they were going to record. The welcome in each band member's room from Claude Knobs that day included a T-shirt from a recent Montreux show, a basket of fruit, a bottle of Swiss wine and an invitation to see the matinee performance by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention the following afternoon. So they all got those tickets kind of complimentary and then decided to go watch Frank Zappa before they were going to load in all their gear and start recording. And we know how that went. Yes, we do. The casino burned down in case we were talking, in case you don't know Deep Purple. The casino burned down. Really? <laughs> what? What? Um, <laughs> see, and this Spoilers is the only. This is the only one too. If you think about it, we haven't really. Some of the songs we've talked about the lyrics or the lyrical content or whatever. You did a lot more with the the earlier songs, but this is really the only song so far on this album that we've talked about the lyrics because it's got the most famous story associated to it. Like most of this song is not known just for the riff, but the like the story. Yeah. Well, like, and, that's what people talk about the most. And John Lord, always, uh, John Lord in interviews is always saying like, uh, people, you know, people still ask me, what's Smoke on the Water about? He's like, just listen to the lyrics. It's right it's right there. It tells the whole story. Oy. <laughs> um, so um, Smoke on the Water, four pilgrim hats each. I toyed um, with four and a half with this one too. I, and... Reluctantly, because this is like we talked about in previous an- previous episodes. This is like an anthem more than a song, but I, I think I'll stand by four. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say I would probably contend the anthem thing a little bit. Yeah, you know, you don't think, you don't think it's <laughs> You're an like, anthem? oh yeah, <laughs> oh them's fighting words. <laughs> Well, it's just, that's <laughs> fine. Yeah, let's just, uh, but no, it's, um, I feel like an anthem is rock and roll all night. Uh, an anthem is, uh, we're not going to take it. Um, it's, there's, there's something else that this song has about it. I don't know if anthem is like the word I would use. Okay. Um, it would, it would be like, um, eh. I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely it's it's famous, um, iconic. Um, 
it's one of those songs where the, the singer stops singing and points the microphone at the audience to sing smoke on the you know what i mean or yeah it's, it's a song where the band stops and everyone just lets the audience go yeah so it might be shy of being an anthem yeah, but I mean, I guess my my understanding or my definition of what I would think is an anthem uh, differs from that. But it doesn't mean doesn't mean that uh, that you're wrong in that. I just think it's more. I feel like the song's more iconic. I would say I- iconic is probably what I would call it because it really is. Because like we were saying, it's not just like the riff is iconic. It's just like one of the uh, besides like I'm trying to think wild thing or something like that it's probably one of the first riffs that i learned on the guitar because it was easy yep uh and very easily recognizable iconic and of course the lyrics at this point are except for the people that went up to john lord and asked him what what's the the hell is this song about (laughs) yeah i don't know why they would ask him that um but yeah so i was i was toying around with more pilgrim hats than that or maybe another half in a buckle or something but uh yeah i stayed at four because i couldn't i don't know maybe at this point i couldn't listen to it objectively enough to hear anything else in it that kind of pushed it over the top for me it's very hard to listen to this song objectively for me like i could almost get there with highway star with this one it's just it's kind of like a i mean it's their defining song it's their <laughs> most popular song i'm sure it's made them the most money it's Probably their encore every night. Um, just was never my favorite song, but yeah, I, yeah. I think I like it a lot more listening to it critically than I ever did. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll agree. And there there were times where I've listened to this song quite a bit to try and nail the guitar solo mm-hmm. uh, and try and play it through and. I have to say that there were, that's probably why I like the solo so much is because like listening back to it or like slowing it down or listening to it in pieces and everything, I got to appreciate it more. Um, like how melodic it was or how there were different like sections of it. Like if you listen to it, it's just like, okay, here's, here's like the first section. There's the second, yep. there's the, the, like the beginning, the middle and the end, which I think arguably are some of the best solos are the ones where you can clearly identify, um, like here's the beginning, middle, and end to it. It's almost like a song in itself. Yeah, uh, which are one, of, which is one of the reasons that like Ace Frehley is one of my favorite guitar players because some of his most iconic solos in Kiss were like the same thing. They had a beginning, a middle, and an end. There were ones where he noodled around, or they were like clearly like Rich, some of Richie's solos. Uh, you could tell that they were improvised, but the ones that really stood out were ones like that or like smoke on the water. Yep. So, but anywho, All right. I, digre- I digest. <laughs> okay. So next up, let's see what we got here. I'm trying to do something else. Uh, not a valid file format. Okay. The next song we have, oh, that already exists. That's why. Next song we have up is a song, track six, third song on the second side of the album. It is Lazy. Yes. A great live track from them. Mm, yeah. But you got this like kind of intro that I almost forgot about. I'm so used to the live versions. 
They're very haunting. Yeah. Of course, the John Lord build up. Yeah. And live, they just kind of taunt each other for a while and then eventually go into the song. <laughs> Sometimes taunt each other for a really long time. There's one of my favorite. I don't know if it's from, from the Denmark show, but there's one where like, Ian's like yelling at him, like, oh, just start the riff. <laughs> They're laughing about it, but John toys with almost doing the riff right there. Right there. <laughs> Sometimes they'll do even a little jam and Ian will come in for a little bit before they get into it. Yeah. Oh, all those draw bars and Going for the church organ sound. Nice. Almost got the feeling of them being drunk in the studio. Except they're playing a little better. <laughs> There it is. Almost two minutes in. They really know how to build it up. Oh yeah. And this is a song I feel like we talked about Child in Time the same way, that it's it's great listening to the album version as much as the live version. Like they both have their their pluses in terms of being really long, kind of jammy songs. Of course, the album version is more um, concise. Yeah, a little more, yeah, a little more straightforward. But I almost like when I think of this song. I don't think of the album version. I always think of the live version, much like Child in yeah. Time. Yeah. So on this one, this originated during a rehearsal for the tour, and Lorgan, Lord put his organ, well, his or, his musical instrument organ, through a phaser box. That's how we get that sound. And this song was written to replace, I don't know if it was written to replace, but it did replace Mandrake Root in their live sets. They stopped playing Mandrake Root after this point. They really milked Mandrake Root for all it was worth. <laughs> they, they just, yeah. they wouldn't let go of that song. Got the Mandrake it was, Root. It was time. It was time. Might have been time even earlier. Nothing bad. I mean, for Mark One, Mandrake Root was top notch. But by this point, like, they're still playing Mandrake Root. Come on, get get rid of that. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> and here we are. We're more than halfway through the song, and the lyrics have not come in yet. But they will soon. And there's really not a lot of lyrics. No. 
Like, yeah, Child in Time is like 12 lines, even though it's like a almost 10 minute song. Classic blues just repeating the same line twice every time. Yeah. I was thinking and if there wasn't just enough soloing, let's just do more. Yeah, like, okay, so we've got Ian Pace opening with drum solos. We got John and Richie obviously switching off the whole time. We, we threw Roger at solo. Ian gets his harmonica solo on this one. When you hear how good Ian Gillen is in the harmonica, you do wonder why he doesn't do it more often. Yeah. starts ripping into it they said this song was uh, mostly a vehicle for solos you don't say <laughs> but it sounds like just every other song too every song they do is a vehicle for solos yeah Ian Gillen's singing probably only goes through 10 or 15% of the song So Richie Blackmore says, that's a weird solo because I did a particularly, I did a particular part one day and I did another part another day. You could hear the difference and I still criticize that solo. I think the song was great, the competition was good, but I could have done better. So maybe cool how the drum and the guitar followed each other. And then just kind of like, kind of cuts up to this this section right here. So I don't know if that's, that was the cut that he was talking about, but hmm. I don't know that anybody else is picking up as much on that as he is. Well, I mean, everybody's their own harshest critic. I'm surprised that Richie is. Yeah. <laughs> like, Everything I do turns to gold. <laughs> Everything I touch, it's I have the Midas touch. Bay, bay, bay. So interesting enough, Richie Blackmore says this was uh, inspired by an Oscar Brown Jr. song called Sleepy. Hmm. I'm going to play for you real quick. I'm not hearing it. Unless I can hear it a little bit. Lyrically, sleepy, lazy. <laughs> so that is, Richie says that was the, the inspiration. 
for the song. And then the inspiration for the guitar solo was uh, Eric Clapton's solo with John Mayle on Stepping Out. Hmm. It's right here. Which I have a lot right. easier time hearing. <laughs> Reminds me of American Bandstand. So that one's pretty clear. You can see where we would have gotten inspiration from that. Yeah, that's pretty clear cut. <laughs> but no, not no mistake in that one. But not thievery like we've seen before. Just kind of like, oh, it's clearly inspired by it. Not thievery, just borrowing. <laughs> well, that's I mean, a, no, a bluesy yeah, totally. solo in a particular style sounds like a bluesy solo. It's of course, I think pretty good, but. All right. So let's see. So that is, let me see, lazy four and four. Four and four. Uh, I'll buy that for a dollar. Hi-yo. And then with that, we've got the climactic album closer. <laughs> and that, of course, is Space Trucking. And has a has a ramp up similar to Smoke on the Water. The album version, four and a half minutes live. This would go twenty to thirty minutes sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the heavy organ sound of this one. It's great. Makes it. I love how he can make his organ sound heavier than a guitar in a lot of cases. This song is all kind of puns on space. Ian Gillen says uh, he thought that it, it was so cutting edge that they lived in the space age. So he wanted to write this song about, you know, instead of a trucker, a space trucker. Based on that graphic of the keep on trucking. Have you seen the guy with the big foot sticking out? Yeah. Walking, keep on trucking. So that was kind of their inspiration for this one. Yeah, but this is definitely a vehicle for, like, a heavy organ. Like, I can't even really pick the guitar out. Yeah, the guitar is kind of secondary on the song. But this part, the chorus, was Richie's idea. It was just a chromatic... A chromatic riff. And he says he took it to Ian Gill and said... And said is it too simple? All I can think of is come on, come on. And so I guess that's Richie's like lyric <laughs> his one lyric contribution. Listen to the, the keys. Ian Gillen said that the song was all cheap wordsmith tricks and puns. <laughs> of course, and of course he'd say it like that. 
<laughs> Glover says, uh, it's all about space travel, but it's done in that 1950s lyrical style. We just sat around making up stupid little phrases about space. <laughs> and this song replaced No, No, No in their live set. Hmm. That's a shame because I love that song. I know, no, no, you do. <laughs> hey. I see what you <laughs> And on stage, Ian would have busted out the congas and been probably slapping away at him for at least a good 15 minutes while he's thrashing his hair around and Richie's <laughs> rubbing his guitar over his butt and amp and every other thing he can. But on the album, they got to keep it a little shorter. Yeah. I don't remember hearing this one as much on the radio growing up, but I, I know it was a occasional... I did. Yes, this one, this one, smoke, this one, smoke in the water and Highway Star. Yeah, I feel like Highway Star probably even more than Smoke on the Water. See this buildup? Always love buildups like that coming out of a uh, solo. Yeah, they're no strangers to doing that. The only thing is, Ian Gillen didn't scream his his larynx out like he normally did going into it. <laughs> Saved it for this, yeah, like I guess. That's, yeah, like that's kind of like uh, the end of um, the end of the solo in um, Speed King. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where he just screams yeah. into it. Yep. But they they just kind of built up. You can hear some sort of maybe cowbell, maracas, maybe. All triangle. Pan. Maybe. <laughs> the triangle. That's a good solid album closer. I think so, yeah. So um Space Trucking four. Solid four, four across the board. Yes, sir. And I think it's it's worth mentioning that there's I think we should talk about when a blind man cries. All right. We don't really have anything to talk about for a special edition, and this song was really meant to be a part of the album and just didn't get put on. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian Pace says that he regrets that the, uh, it wasn't on the album, and Ian Gillen, um, in an interview where Ian Pace and Ian Gillen are sitting next to each other in this documentary about the um, about the album. He said, uh, you know, Ian Pace is like, oh, I, you know, I wish it was on the album. And Ian Gillen says, yeah, but Richie, he no like it. <laughs> Which I would, just cracks me up the way he says it. Uh, but yeah, R Richie Blackmore, for whatever reason, didn't like the song. And it didn't get put on the album. But here it is, When a Blind Man Cries. You can kind of hear shades of shades of deep purple, shades of Mark One in this song, like the production of it. If you're leaving, close the door. I think it's a beautiful song. Ian Gillen says. The lyrics are about how there is someone always worse off than you are. And Roger Glover says that this is 
the story. This tells the story of recording the album. Or that Smoke on the Water tells the story of recording the album. But Blind Man paints a picture of the atmosphere of creating the album. This is another one where you can hear the ambiance of the room. Great. Oh, wow. Nice. Some great solos by Richie. Yeah, it gives me a little feeling of what uh, what's going to happen in the future with Soldier of Fortune. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think about that, but it does sound very... Which is weird. He loved that song. I don't know why he hated this one. Maybe he rewrote it to be Soldier of Fortune and he never told anybody. <laughs> Could be. We heard that earlier with um, You Keep On Moving. And they never played this live as Mark II, mm. except for one time on April 6th, 1972. Mm. Was that? No, that can't be right, because this was recorded. Oh, yeah, I guess it was. Oh. Richie was sick, and they hired a guitarist named Randy California. <laughs> and they're like, oh, oh wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. And they said, Richie's gone. We can play the song. And they played it live that one night. <laughs> Oh, they're like when the cat's away, the mice, <laughs> the mice will play. Exactly. Richie's the cat. But they were keeping that 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 kind of pact they had, which is if one person didn't want to play the song, they didn't play it live, or they didn't include it in their live sets. I mean, Richie was apparently the only person holding them back from that. As great as Space Truckin' is, I can't help but think this wouldn't have been a great closer to the album. Even though it's not like the rockin' kickin' the ass like they normally do at the end of an album, I, th I think it'd be a great closer. It would have been, it would have given a different feel to the album, yeah. Because again, it would have been like the way Stormbringer closed. Yeah, exactly. Nice song, but definitely did not belong on Machine Head as we know it. Yeah, I could, I um, could, have I, seen, I could have seen it. I mean, it's yeah, I, it's different. It's different. I mean, if we were going to go into reordering the tracks or putting this on instead of something else type of scenario, then maybe. But it's like as soon as I heard it, I'm like, this doesn't fit in with the rest of the song. So I think they made the right call in leaving it off. Whoever made the call, um, but it's still good as standalone. It's I think it's pretty good. And um, like I said, they never played it live with Richie, but again, when you talked about when the cat's away, the second Blackmore <laughs> left in 93, Satriani came in, boom, it's back in the set. And they played it. Yeah. And ever since then, they've, they've, it's been a staple of their live set. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a crowd favorite. And then interestingly, Ian Gillen recorded this song for his album Gillen's Inn. And who do you think he had on guitar? Randy California? No. I have no idea. When a blind man cries, Jeff Healy. The famous blind guitar player. Oh. Remember Jeff Healy? He played the guitar in his lap and he was Oh, okay. No, I don't know. I didn't know his name. 
Yep. What was it? From Roadhouse. Remember, Roadhouse. Remember Roadhouse, the movie Patrick Swayze? Yeah. He's the guitar player in that. So he's uh yeah, he okay. was you know, he had some hit some some kind of radio play in, in the, the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. he, he featured Jeff Healy. Um it's kind of typical Ian Gillen. Hey, I have a song about a blind man. Hey, Jeff, you're blind. Why don't you play guitar on this? You know, it's like he's so uh, he's so like um, I don't know what the word is. <laughs> Direct, no, or just, not PC. I don't know. <laughs> but Jeff Healy was fine with it, apparently. Um, and you know, it, it's um, typically no. when they do this live, it's quite a bit longer too, like most songs. All right, so. Um yeah, you gave this a four. I gave it three point five. I give it a little less. Um, I didn't enjoy it as much. All right, I'm a bigger Blind Man f- Prize fan than you are. Um, so is that the that's the album, right? That's the album, and, and you know, to kind of wrap it up, it was it was it was promoted very heavily on TV, and I can play for you. Here it is, one of the TV advertisements. Here we go. Shop now on Purple Records. Where else? <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty short, short little ad yeah. there. Um, nice. So they would just kind of play that on TV. So it was, it was promoted on, despite what Ian Gillen says, it was given. Uh, you know, they gave Never Before the the, the the prime spot there. They promoted it heavily on TV. It reached number one in the UK charts. Many other countries didn't chart in the US, um, but since then has gotten. 2x platinum status in the U.S. selling over two million copies. Um, John Lord says this is the apex of what we started to do with in rock. I think we should try and go around a few corners with the next one. Some people say we don't seem to have progressed very far since in rock, where some of that justification <clears throat> lies is in the fact that we haven't really deviated from the set lines, and I think it's time we start to shoot for the stars a little bit more. Hmm. Blackmore says I think Machine Head is a good LP. I think the ideas are better, and the group are playing well when when we recorded it. Two tracks, especially "Highway Star" and "Smoke on the Water," I like. The whole album is a lot better than the last one. Um, they started to show a little bit um, of stress during recording this. Um, in 1969, they agreed that they would give credit to everything, but then they start to get a little bit petty. Blackmore says, "On this LP, I wrote six tracks, and Roger wrote two. And Glover says, sometimes I feel I'd like more credit for some of the stuff I do. I think it avoids friction this way. Um, though I can't say it won't in the future. As soon as money comes into it, people change. Some for better, some for worse. Glover mm-hmm. says, Machine Head was, was the beginning of the bad period. It was coming because as far as the writing side of it was concerned, we'd agreed at the outset that we were going to share everything five ways because everything we wrote was part of a jam. And in those days, we had nothing to lose. <laughs> It's only when you realize how much money is involved in publishing that people turn around and said, he had nothing to do with that, and yet he's getting a lot of money for it. Those kinds of things <laughs> cause tension. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and by the time the album hit record stores in April of 72, Blackmore was telling journalists the end was near. <laughs> and he, he was quoted as saying, I suppose we'll see the year out if we're lucky. Turns out he was right. But uh, of course, of course, he would say that something <laughs> ominous, friggin', friggin' crazy. 
Um, one important thing to note um, that was meant, I forgot where I was reading it, and somebody even mentioned it on Twitter the other day, uh, commented on something with this, this story, um, and it <clears throat> struck me because I had just written it, read it about it a few days before in one of the books. I think it was in um, uh, whose book was it? Can't remember which book it was, um, but he he says about Blackmore. They were getting ready. Um, in for one of their shows, and the roadie Colin, Colin Hart uh, went to find couldn't find Blackmore, and then he found him in the hallway of the hotel just in tears. And Blackmore said he had no memory of what caused caused it, but he was having a nervous breakdown, basically from the the touring schedule and just all the stress that the wow. band was under. And um, he just kind of had a breakdown, and then he just kind of pulled it together and got ready for the show. But just you could see the cracks showing with the band, and they, everyone was getting pretty burned out. Yeah, wow. But that's um, that's Machine Head, the album. All right, so Machine Head. Um, let's see for for us, uh, Machine Head. Um, overall, I get four point oh seven, and you four point one four. So you rated a little higher than me. Our combined rating is not surprisingly the highest of all the Deep Purple albums. The, the next one being in rock, being at a solid eight. Okay. So those are really our two, look like our two favorites, uh, top two favorites. And our our variance here is equal with Fireball. So we varied the same amount on how we <clears throat> liked this and how we liked Fireball. In the same direction? Did I like this a little more and you like, or, or did we both, what was the... Um, yeah, you liked Fireball a little more than than me, and you liked Machine Head a little bit more than me. Okay. And the yeah the lo- the lowest yeah the yeah I'm sorry the other metrics don't really matter at the moment. Um, but yeah, so so far like our I would say our top two rated are this one and Fireball and. I'm sorry, this one in rock and then Fireball being our top three, not surprisingly, in that order. Okay. Not, um, still no huge surprises yet. Um, no, I mean, it's, I mean, if we're, if we're trying, if we are admittedly trying to be, um, critical and listen to it with fresh ears and not just hand out like I mean if we, if we were just like giving this album if we were just paying lip service to it we would have handed out fives to everything it's a machine you know? head it's got five everything's five yeah but I think being as like democratic as we're trying to be I think that just kind of proves that where the albums in a way proves where the albums sit in most people's opinions is about right, I would say it was about fair. I, I haven't seen anything that's really too surprising except for how highly we rated the self-titled Deep Purple album. Yeah, yeah, good call. Yeah, because looking back on it, like we both said, I don't think we either of us had listened to that album in 20 years. So we kind of lumped it together with Shades and Talison. And then when we listened to it again, we're like, holy crap, this is actually much better than those two albums. And, they had- and actually, as it, as it stands right now, that's still like in fourth place. Yeah. Uh, for our highest rated albums, which I'm sure that after the next the next one and the one after that, it's going to get knocked down even lower. Sure. <laughs> but I mean, I'm only guessing. And then in our next episode, we're going to tackle Made in Japan. And 
I kind of grappled with that one because it's like live albums, uh, they're not always my thing, but I feel like that one is, I feel like there's a few live albums that are super important. I feel like that one's one, like Tribute from Ozzy is, Randy Roach Tribute is super important. It's like, I feel like that album is part of the discography rather than just, oh, here's a live album yeah. of a show we did. It's, yeah, it's so I mean, much more than that. Yeah, I mean, you can't, I mean, even if we don't do the format the same as we do here, like listening through the whole thing, um, it would probably be like a concerto thing. I could see where like some of the more extended jams we might skip around mm -hmm. or you might skip around it or we won't hear the whole thing. But that would just be kind of like not listening to Kiss Alive if you were doing the Kiss catalog. I mean, it's exactly. the same songs, but they're presented a little bit differently and in a way that's like famous and iconic for the catalog that exactly. we're that we're doing. So that's going to be, that's going to be next up. We, we didn't really have too much discussion on it. You're like, eh, what do you think? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't, <laughs> it was, I grappled with it a little bit, I guess, before I asked you what you thought, but yeah. um, that's the only one I think that needs to be part of this main series before we break off and start doing other stuff. And then of course we can tackle hundred other live albums if we want to, but that's the only one I feel like is part of the main discography in a way no, that is. like, live in Montreux uh, 96 isn't, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, all the other ones that come after um, are ones that could have been just released after the fact or uh, to make money or whatever, like in a different way than, than that. Because I mean, like uh, the, I don't, I don't know any of the history yet, but I mean, this could, this live album could have been a money grab um, like most live albums were, even though at that time they weren't making any money for anybody. Yeah. Um, if you, if you know anything about live albums at the time. So, um, but it, it's like you said, just to keep it short and sweet, like it is part of the original discography and oh, we shouldn't not include it. Yep. So that'll be up next week. Um, yeah. do have a, do have one quick news thing that I feel like I need to bring up, which is we talked about a few episodes that, uh, a few episodes ago, that Joe Satriani's uh, band Squares from like the early 80s, they mm -hmm. had an album and they, they kind of remastered it and it never came out, but um, it did come out today. So nice. um, I got it and listened to it on my drive home from work only one time, but I feel like, uh, I, I feel like I really like it. It was one yeah. of those albums where I'm driving along and I'm like, I'm, oh my god! I'm singing along to the. It's the second time the chorus is going, but I'm singing along. Like, yeah, like that says a lot to me. And uh, I just, I'll play. I'll just. I don't actually remember any of the names of these songs, so I'm gonna play just a random segment. Let's try. Let's try this. But it's interesting because it's interesting hearing Joe Satriani in this kind of almost new wave but in times heavy at times almost like pre-glam sort of stuff but it's it's poppy wow it's new agey it's more complicated than most pop stuff is because it's Joe Satriani and the solos are really good And they're all short songs. This is a three and a half minute song, but listening, I, I can't, I couldn't stop listening to Joe Satriani's guitar work throughout the song, even aside from the solos. 
because this is not somebody just strumming a guitar. I don't know if there's, a, I don't even know, if there's gotta be a guitar yeah, I can, solo. I can definitely hear this in like an early 80s like movie soundtrack. Here we go, there's gotta be a guitar solo here somewhere. nothing crazy like you'd hear from Satriani like more recently but it's some really good guitar playing yeah but you can tell it's him oh exactly I mean, that's, that's, yeah it's, that's the mark of a great guitar player the tone from his style you can definitely tell you can tell that it's Joe Satriani yeah. and it's one of those things where you're like what how, why didn't this band take off like I mean there's no way of telling but you know, yeah, I, mean, I know Chris, Chris, uh, Chris on uh, Pot of Thunder was talking about that in recent episodes. Like, who's making the decisions? Like, that this is gonna, like, I don't know if I'm so conspiratorial about it, but it's like, there's like somebody <laughs> making the decisions, like, this is gonna be popular and this isn't. It's like, who yeah. looked at this and said, nope, it's gonna be something else? I can, I could, all of this stuff, it's like, if you told me this did come out, like, this was released and it was major and I just missed it, I, I'd believe you, but. This, nobody really heard any of this until the last few months. I mean, you know, it could be without knowing anything about it. Uh, record label could have not been behind it. Maybe it wasn't promoted enough. Uh, maybe the band broke up before they had a chance to tour. Like, it could have been, like, so many business things. Like, when we were younger, I used to think stuff like, oh, why wasn't this band so big? Or, and some bands just don't catch on yep. for whatever for whatever reason. But a lot of it we never understood was is a lot of it is like business stuff. Oh, like, yeah. Like all the stuff that I just mentioned, which it, who knows? I bet if you did some digging, you'd probably be able to find out. Yep. And uh, just to close it out, we do have a few quick history notes. And very fittingly, hey. we're talking about the week of July 15th through the 21st. So this episode will be released on the 15th. Mm -hmm. On July 15th, 1956, Joe Satriani himself was born. So very fitting. That kind of worked out unintentionally that, that he released that album today. And then sadly, on July 16th, John Lord passed away. And I still do remember... Uh, I remember talking to you briefly after he passed away on Facebook. We shot some messages back and forth. And um, mm -hmm. I remember my my uh, my sons, my twin boys would have been eight days old. And I remember sitting both of them in my lap uh, as babies and listening to uh, some, some John Lord stuff, some Deep Purple, some I put on the concerto. I put on the Concerto 99 that you had turned me on to because we started mm -hmm. talking about John Lord that day and um, just kind of have memories of just kind of sadly thinking about John Lord and having these two new babies and can't, not believing that the hospital let me take them home. Still think that that was a mistake. 
What were they thinking? Uh. I clearly don't know what I'm doing. Um, and then uh. rewinding it again a little bit. Um, July 17th, 1968, the album that started it all, Shades of Deep Purple, was released. Another Here we go big, with that $2 million album cover or whatever. <laughs> oh, only $1.5 Don't get crazy. Oh, geez. It's yeah. not like they, uh, they, you know... Put a put a background on it or anything. It just had a purple you know, background. You know, isn't it funny though? I bet the if you took, if you looked at like what the budget was for this, and then the budget for what it for Machine Head was, which one is the more creative and iconic and like cool looking album cover? What are you talking about? It's five guys standing there on a, on a purple background. What's what could be more creative than that? Um, I don't know. Um. Maybe Rod Evans kind of cheeky stare like what's Rod up? Evan, and Ian Pace is like almost completely in the shadows. The lighting yeah, the, the lighting isn't even good on this photo. You can't see Ian well, of course you can never see Ian Pace's eyes, but Rod <laughs> Evans is like, you know, I mean, Nick Simper looks like he's holding his breath. Very Mr. Bean look for Richie Blackmore, which he tends to <laughs> veer into that territory all too often. <laughs> oh shit. And for come on, for 1.5 million you couldn't have like combed John Lord's hair or gotten him a different shirt. I mean, yeah, pitiful. Absolutely dis- <laughs> disgraceful. <laughs> that, that was one point we went from like <laughs> 1.5 million dollars. We went, we went from making fun of this for you to you calling it pitiful, which is just like the worst. It's like the worst sounding insult ever. It's like this album cover is pitiful. I mean, this album cover is fine. And for 1968, totally run in the mill. The fact that it costs, I think I forgot what my calculation was, but in today's dollars, it was like $3.6 million. This album cover cost. And then like two years later, they're scratching together, like stealing public domain art <laughs> and spending third and then not even getting it right. Not even colorizing it properly. And uh, you know, like uh, they, I mean, that's totally mismanaged, horrible record label. It should be ashamed of themselves if they still I mean, exist. Uh, not even like spending their funds responsibly. It's like, well, yeah, you figure it, they, it was, you know, like anything else like, oh, yeah, we got the money will just come forever and let's just do it. Let's have these huge, these huge parties and invite all of our friends and do all this crap. And then, you know, like a year later, they're like, oh, crap. Uh, 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 can can you send your manager home from the tour early? Because we can't afford his hotel room, you know, because they blew through, through all this money like a bunch of idiots. If they put that money in the bank. They probably would have been been fine, and they wouldn't have to pressure the band so much to release more material. Well, I mean, look at this album cover, though. I mean, it's just like I could get, I could get all f- like I could get all five of these guys in here now and line them up against my bedroom <laughs> wall and just shoot this with my iPhone for free. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, and it's like one point five million by like twenty nineteen standards must be like a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, but even technology advances aside, they they could have. I mean, whatever. It's like I said, if this album, if this cost them five hundred dollars to make, I don't. I wouldn't say a peep about it. But one point five million, give me a break. Well, I want to know how much of it went to how much of the budget went to John Lord's shirt. I want to know how much went to Richie's bouffant. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, oh. Anyway, or like, well, actually, yeah, this wasn't the most helmety that Rod Evans' hair has ever been, but uh, no, it's, no, it's, Nick Simper either. Like, yeah, the Playboy. Uh, I'm that, sorry, Nick Simper, Nick Simper. Yeah, the, the, the Playboy uh, concert or the Playboy show was definitely the, the pinnacle. Um, but yeah, his 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 hair does not look good by any stretch of the imagination in this. But it's 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 no it's it's nowhere near as bad as it could be. You know what I was surprised about? Uh, just since we're on the since we're talking about these people for some reason um, <laughs> in our Machine Head episode was did you see the the clip that I sent you from Captain Beyond? Did you ever know that Rod yes. Evans ever even looked like that? Yeah, I have seen clips of him with Captain Beyond before, so yeah. Yep. I was just like, this dude had long, long hair. I was like, all right, he's rocking it out. Um, but then, like, he looked, like, so... Like, now I understand why they probably didn't even succeed, because he looked so friggin' bored. He, like, sang the song, and he's just like, yeah, thanks. And then he's just like... Like, probably like all depressed. He's like, yeah, thanks. I could have been in Deep Purple, but I'm doing this instead. And then he just like walks away. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, uh, but anyways, yeah, I don't know how we, oh, wait a minute. That's because what was this album released today or something? Like, why are we even talking about I don't know. Album? Why are we talking about I thought we were done with Mark One. Um, yeah, it was released on, on uh, July 17th. So next no. Wednesday, okay. I guess, will be the um, Wednesday after right. this is released will be the anniversary. So. Right. Anyway, we should close it up, my friend. That is uh, that is yep. Machine Head. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you want to support the show, if you if we're giving you some sort of value for this, give us some value back. Become a patron, even $1 a month, $3 a month, 5 whatever you want to give. Uh, we'd highly appreciate it. And even more importantly, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We need more. We haven't gotten a new rating in a while. So oh. please rate us and write a review. Write about why you like the show. Or if you don't like the show, please don't. But um no. You can you just write whatever 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 comes to comes to mind. But if you're if you're receiving value from this and you really enjoy it, please uh, that's all yeah. we ask is don't totally. donate a tiny amount of money or, or or write us a review or both. Yeah, that would be awesome. All right, my friend, I'll talk to you next week and we'll talk about right. Made in Japan. And we are out of here. <laughs> Good night. Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also give us a rating on iTunes to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening. So we go, so we go into like, there was a coffee shop or something. He goes, hey, you know, there's a bear out back. And they're like, eh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they don't give a crap. Yeah, we see a bear like every five minutes.